It's very hard and confusing for the public to receive messages that seem to change. But if we don't build the trust with the science and the health professionals ahead of the game, then nobody is a respected, trusted person who comes out and tries to give that information. Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about innovation and equity in global health. We're brought to you in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, which brings together world-class academic institutions, innovative technology and biotech companies, non-profits and community organizations, all based in the Bay Area and all committed to improving the health and wellness of people around the world. You can find out more at www.bayareaglobalhealth.org. Now, our guest today is Professor John Mazet, who is the Vice Provost Grand Challenges at the University of California, Davis. Jonna is one of the world's leading experts in global health problems solving, particularly for emerging infectious disease and conservation challenges. She's a founding member of the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, and she's been a regular guest on our podcast. Jonna, welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here with you again. I know. So this is actually the third podcast that that you and I have done since the start of the pandemic. We are still remote um and and i suppose on on both other occasions we asked ourselves well let's hope the next time we can do this in person <laughs> but here we are remote um still not together <laughs> still not together so so 2 years really of covid um it's been a lot more complex than we anticipated right yeah it sure has been and uh of course uh i've been working in this field for a long time and sure hoped that we would have never gotten into this situation and expected to have been able to be in a better place than we are today another holiday season upon us worrying about infections but um i i i continue to believe that if people pull together and uh work together, we can get out of it, and um, maybe we can learn something and not get into this situation again. So I, I, I do want to come on to the science and sort of understand two years on where we are, but sort of in the, in the festive spirit to try and really be a bit more up, upbeat, it, it, it hasn't actually been all doom and gloom for everybody. I mean, and I'm fascinated at how organizations, say like the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, have been able to seize this moment, whether it's been through webinars, Zoom calls, podcasts like the ones we've done and are doing now, how we've been able to use technology to continue the conversation about um, evolution in global health and what we do to improve equity and access. And um, how do you feel we've done over these last two years? I'm incredibly proud that the Alliance and my home institution, UC Davis, uh, pivoted really quickly to stay connected, keep the university going, um, and even better yet, recognize the power of technology to unite us virtually and then powerfully really allowed us to both philosophically align and find ways to contribute to solutions during the pandemic. The Alliance really brings together experts in the San Francisco Bay Area, as you know, you and me, how we met. Um, but from academia, industry, that includes health and medicine, uh, other international kind of powerhouses, uh, and that are very powerful technology sector. Uh, and they, they come together with not-for-profit organizations that are all working to better the health uh, for the world's most vulnerable people. So I think it's great together. We can connect for innovation and equity, right? Right. And, and, and the two years that we've been talking, um, seen changes to your career as well. You are uh, a vice provost now. You're vice president of this innovative program at UC Davis, uh, the Grand Challenges program. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about what you're doing now? Yeah, so UC Davis d decided to um, really take a bite out of the world's most wicked problems in a bigger way instead of nibbling around the edges. And uh, they asked me to champion that effort and to lead the new grand challenges. I'm, I'm certainly incredibly honored and humbled, uh, but I do feel like 
this pandemic has taught us that we need to get in front of things. We need to work hard uh, to understand the drivers of how these big problems come along. Uh, and you, as you know, Ben, I'm a, a, also a big champion of the One Health approach, meaning really bringing people together from all different disciplines to tackle uh, big problems, and especially at this interface where COVID started, the interface of uh, human, animal, uh, and environmental health. So um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm just excited about that. Uh, and I, I was also able for the decade before the pandemic to be working with amazing professionals, virologists, epidemiologists, diagnosticians, veterinarians, anthropologists all over the world um, to develop a network and strengthen systems for just this exact thing. And I'm happy to say where they live, uh, things did go a lot better at the beginning of the pandemic uh, than they did where I live, where we we didn't do that work. So um, so it, it's an exciting time to sort of harness people's enthusiasm for fixing these big, wicked problems. And I hope that doesn't wane. So I love that. Big, wicked problems. That's how I'm going to define One Health from now onwards. Um, I love it. But, but it's also been a, a good time in that the U.S. government has sort of refreshed its investment in the, um, the, 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 the sort of the predict work, the predicting of, um, uh, you know, new infectious um, uh, diseases that may, that may come up. And you've been overseeing and managing that network. So can you talk a bit about that? That's back on track, right? It is back on track, but but the PREDICT project itself, which was aimed at really building the capacity in some of the uh, world's uh, least developed economies, at least. Um, so really working with countries to help make sure their laboratories and their surveillance systems were in place for this, for disease X, what might come next. And for, for us right now, that's, uh, you know, caused by SARS-CoV-2. Um, and and there was a time when it looked like the U.S. was going to stop investing in that. And um, USAID uh, that funded us in the PREDICT project uh, in 30 countries uh, is has renewed that investment with two more projects. So I'm pleased to see that that's continuing. And they continue to push education as well and, and university programs. And we're honored to be able to work on that for them as well. Terrific. And, and I, I suppose that then gets us to sort of where we are today. And um, two years on, what really do we know about SARS-CoV-2? We, we know that it's changing rapidly. We have variants uh, running through the Greek alphabet very, very rapidly. Um, but, but after two years, what do we concretely know about SARS-CoV-2, the, the, the virus that causes COVID-19? And it's, it's sort of affecting our immune system in much sort of more complex ways than we imagined. Yeah, I'm afraid that we don't yet know as much as we need to know. And that's why I'm such an advocate for research in advance of epidemics and pandemics, as well as system strengthening, as I mentioned, um, with PREDICT in advance. But of course, you're right, Ben. We have learned so much during this tragedy uh, including that we can't expect every disease to behave like the ones that came before we've seen in the past. Uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, most of our strongest virus work had been for influenza because it's so devastating and kills people every year. Um, but the early models uh, were really all based on that and, and kind of were all the way back to what happened in 1918. And that was a big miss because this isn't influenza, <laughs> in case anybody's still wondering. It's not, it's not the flu. Uh, and, um, and it doesn't transmit or, or behave like the flu. Um, it's, it has its own nuances. So we really are seeing advances and understanding more about how it is different. And hopefully, back to your previous question, uh, we're learning that we can't just sit on our laurels and, and work on what happened before and assume that that will be completely applicable to what comes next. So I think you said, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think you said something really important there, that we can't go back, sit on our laurels and, you know, go back to what we, we are doing. I think that is one of the most important lessons that the European and public health 
uh, European and American public health communities need to understand. Um, we didn't go off track with SARS-CoV-2 and you know, we get that done and then we're, we're back to what we were doing before. Really, this has forced us to make really significant changes in the way we think and prepare. And I'm just struck about your comment about um, the predict work and that, you know, this is about strengthening capacity in resource limited settings. Well, what about strengthening capacity here in the United States? That's clearly a big yeah, priority now. It was a big miss. I, I have to be honest, there's a lot of global health work going on internationally, uh, the global health security agenda. And, and uh, our team working on PREDICT was one of the staunch, we were recipients of of the benefits of being able to work on the global health security agenda. But we also were staunch advocates for making it less specific to previous pathogens. Um, and, uh, and obviously we weren't as successful in that advocacy as I had hoped because it did remain focused on, on those uh, known pathogens. And what that meant was that countries like my own uh, in the U.S., uh, sort of responded, in my opinion, a bit arrogantly about our capacities because we have great capacity set up for diseases we know about, but we didn't have the capacities set up here um, for disease X or, or the next unknown disease that's going to emerge. And I hope that that will change now. I do know that, uh, you know, there's a lot of work coming out of the White House and others on for for the American Pandemic Preparedness Plan. Uh, and I hope that we don't forget or try to just plan around COVID-19 now instead of being really ready for whatever comes next. We have all the capacity, the technology, everything else we need to be ready, but we have to think about it holistically again, that One Health kind of thinking. And you can take this to a sort of almost microscopic level as well in that it's what we know about sars COVID-2 from 2020 is not the same as what we know in 2022. And I'm thinking about the emergence of variants. And it's a question that a number of our uh, viewers and listeners have, have come back to us about, is just sort of explaining why SARS-CoV-2 evolves, how come we're seeing these, these variants. And I, I suppose my first question for you, Jonna, is here we are with the new variant, Omicron, what do we know about it as of December 2021? Well, we know Omicron is definitely more contagious. So it will likely become the dominant strain wherever it is circulating. There's a little bit of interesting pros and cons about that. Um, the symptoms may be less severe, uh, but there's still real risk to those, especially who are completely unvaccinated uh, and to those whose immunity has waned. Um, so we do need to be revaccinated about every six months, uh, whether we like it or not, <laughs> uh, because we're just not taking care of the other side of the public health picture and keeping people from getting exposed. Uh, and that's all on us, our own human behavior. And uh, again, just like everything else, we're fatiguing of being in this situation and wearing masks and behaving conservatively and staying home. So um, so when we have that waning immunity, uh, we have the ability for new variants uh, to come in or or even more importantly, I think to you and me, uh, when we have whole swaths of the world that are unvaccinated, we are going to have new variants. Uh, the concern here with Omicron is that it can overwhelm the health system because it's so transmissible. And we know that we're escaping vaccine protection, um, possibly because of the virus, possibly because our immunity has waned, likely a combination of those two. So you, you've referred to it. Um, one of the ways that we, we stop um, or, or, or limit the uh, ability of the virus to um, uh, develop variants is to get vaccinated. It won't stop it, but it, it will help slow it down. So vaccination, and it, it, it speaks partly to the need to address uh, and build uh, vaccine acceptance and confidence all around yeah. the world. For me, perhaps the biggest shame, the crying shame and failure of the last two years has been our extraordinary inability 
to work together to get the world vaccinated. And I, I understand that essentially this is, you know, this is a political decision that has to happen at the highest level. But what could we have done as the, the public health community, scientists, healthcare workers, and yeah, advocates like me, what could we have done to, uh, and I suppose continue to do, to, to push um, the issue of vaccine equity? Well, I think the main thing, Ben, and I and I applaud you for this program and pleased again to represent the alliance with you now and then. Um, but what we have to do is keep it up. Uh, and what we should have done and what we could have done is to build that confidence in science all the way along. So people want entertainment. They want, you know, to relax. They don't necessarily want to, uh, you know, get in and, and, um, and learn constantly at the long, at the end of their long, hard day, though. I think podcasts are fixing that people are, are listening to them, having the opportunity to pick that up on their commute, on their walks, everything else. Um, but if we don't build the trust, with the science and the health professionals ahead of the game, then nobody is a respected, trusted person who comes out and tries to give that information. In addition, science evolves. So when we started, we were using the best data. And by the way, I did mention, and I'm a scientist, I'm, I'm faulting myself here too, that best data was from 1918. <laughs> so um, we need to do better than that. Uh, we need to be anticipating with models and everything else what what's coming next and how it might behave because it's very hard and confusing for the public to receive messages that seem to change. Uh, you know, I, I think for me, they're changing at very slow glacial speeds, but for the for the public, like, wait, yesterday I had to wear a mask. Today I don't have to wear a mask. Tomorrow, oops, now I have to wear a mask again. That hand sanitizer I invested in may not fix what what's happening here. So we really need to absolutely continue this work. And I, I hope that your public, uh, and they will go to all their families and friends, will, uh, will continue to want to engage and learn and find out who they can trust and who gives true information so that when uh, we do find ourselves in another bad situation, that's already done. That trust has been enabled. Yeah, and we've got a big job to do in rebuilding, or maybe it's not rebuilding trust and confidence in the, the scientific community. I, I think there's been a, um, it's not something that's new. It's just been accentuated by by social technology. But look, the other yeah, thing, oh no, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just, I, I can't help but draw a corollary here to the very tragic West Africa Ebola outbreak. I think, again, people in, uh, the most developed world part of part of parts of the world looked at that and said, "How could those people be, you know, so violent? How could they be attacking, you know, people who are trying to help them or the public health system?" Well, now we we are living that everywhere, mm -hmm. where people are maybe not, uh, you know, attacking physically people, but. If you aren't wearing your mask and you, or you're going to work infected and not telling people that you have symptoms, that is the same thing, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, yeah it, it is. And it's really tough, I think, to um, for, for, a, for a, a society like the United States, for example, that, you know, believes it has the best systems in place, believes that it has everything to overcome global health uh, crises and challenges for it to understand that actually it's no different than anywhere else and that yeah. you know human behavior is what drives you know 99% of what we do it's 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 not the information it's get it's it's what we yeah. do about it and i think you know for me over the last 2 years one of the really big lessons i've learned from you is is to reengage with communications, to re-engage with the, the tools that we have, whether it's webinars, Zoom calls, all these podcasts, and to look at how we we step it up. An example for me, and, and, and it goes back to Omicron, um, and it, it, it really upsets me, is that, you know, after, well, because of the AIDS pandemic, um, South Africa built one of the world's best detection systems and it understands the evolution 
of viruses really well, better than many, many other countries. And it's one of the first countries to identify Omicron. And it does, it behaves like a fantastic global citizen and shares that with the world. Now, what we should have done is sort of understood that message as, well, we found it here, you need to check your samples because it may well be with you. But what we did was to say, oh my God, South Africa has it, quick, close the borders, we've got to protect ourselves, which was just the wrong thing to do. And I, I think this is about us making sure that our political leaders uh, not only understand the science, but understand what they say and how they say it, because it changes, it, it really does influence what people think about how they protect themselves from, from, um, from uh, viruses. And, uh, you know, that's my declaration, my thing for the moment. But I, I wonder how, what do we do around um, expressing solidarity with the Linda Gale Beckers, the Francis Venter, Francois Venters of South Africa, who've really sort of put themselves forward to, to help us understand how the virus um, evolves? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that our uh, enemy here is ourselves, our human nature. And our human nature is, uh, it leads us to do a couple of things. That is knee-jerk reactions. And then we go, oh, wait a second. We think about it and we say that wasn't the right thing to do. But sometimes the damage is already done because of those knee-jerk reactions. Um, the other is, is really just that we need to blame. We need to place blame. And that is a big, huge obstacle. Again, why I think we need to communicate and find trust and understand science and that science changes as new data is coming forward. Um, because as we find blame, we are punishing the, the groups often who are trying to help and blaming them. And the violence we saw here against, uh, you know, people of Asian descent uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, and then and then the policies and changes that happened, like uh, the the initial reaction to the South African variant is is just devastating. And 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 I'll just speak to myself for myself. And that is, you know, some of us came out and said, let's have solidarity for our colleagues and keep them working so that we can learn more before things are out of control here. And we absolutely shut that down, shut down all communications with China, shut down all uh, interactions that could have helped us uh, address this um, terrible situation much faster and more efficiently. I, I think the shutting down of communications with China, it's not just science, but it's that's something that I think strategically is something we, we really have to come back to. I'd like to turn our attention, if it's okay, to the response that has come from science. Again, putting aside the doom and gloom, actually, what we've been able to do in two years has been extraordinary. We have vaccines, we have therapeutics, and I, I, I wonder... Um, if you could just sort of share with us what you think science has achieved in these two years, what our colleagues in laboratories have achieved, and, and, and where you think, first of all, the science is going to go from here. Yeah, um, uh, well, I, there are things that I hoped for before the pandemic that I still hope for, and that is that we learn as much about uh, viruses as we know about other things like bacteria that we can be infected with. Uh, and um, because of this terrible situation, we've seen an immense improvement of mathematical models that predict where and how people are getting infected and what we need in our healthcare system to support. Uh, and that's where Omicron, again, very dangerous uh, because it does uh, cause illness that can overwhelm healthcare systems uh, because it's spreading so quickly. Um, we've learned uh, that we can develop pipelines for uh, vaccines especially, and I think that's the, the, the development of the vaccine is the biggest success story that I see uh, coming out of this pandemic. The distribution and production, a lot of improvements to be made. Uh, diagnostics, 
a lot of improvements to be made. We innovated amazingly for this one, and I'm so proud that in in our uh, city and count of Davis and County of Yola, we had a program called Healthy Davis Together where we were testing the entire community, school children, everyone, uh, as often as they wanted. But for my university, for example, it's required at least every two weeks if you're vaccinated and we have a vaccine mandate. Uh, if people have other conditions can't get vaccinated. They have to be tested every four days. So, so we did innovate the testing pipeline, but we did we haven't yet really improved upstream. I think the foundational pipeline for diagnostics to be ready and available the next time. I, I believe that is completely possible and um, and should be addressed, uh, but it hasn't yet gone as far as as it should. Um, these advances in in science uh, don't come without risk, and uh, and we have we do have issues that we need to deal with to stay at right on the right. You know, I kind of think of it as a, a balance beam um, because we need to do things so carefully and so judiciously, but we also can't stop science because then we won't have the diagnostics, the vaccines, the treatments. Um, so that that's going to continue to be a major challenge for us. And it's an expectation issue, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we want scientists to be, we want science to be as careful and methodical and safe and risk-free as possible. But then we also want it to be able to move really, really quickly. Why don't we have a diagnostic for this? Why don't we have a vaccine for this? Right. And and to my mind, it speaks to perhaps a downside of the the, the rapid. Uh, response scientifically in, the, in 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 terms of our development of these um, uh, diagnostics and vaccines that we have we've let our expectations the public has let our expectations of science sort of run ahead of ourselves so that when people say and you mentioned this earlier we wear a mask today oh hang on no the guidance is that we wear we don't wear a mask oh but it's changing again and now we do have to wear a mask what we haven't understood is that science, just like the virus, evolves. And, and I wonder, what do you think people like me have to do to be able to sort of explain to people that, that the scientific method is one of learning more, is one of constantly building our knowledge base, mm -hmm. rather than, you know, giving us from on high the, uh, the, the, the sort of solutions straight away that there is a problem? Well, that, what you said is exactly what we need. We just need it more, <laughs> and we need it. We need it early. We need it ongoing. Um, we absolutely uh, need people to understand that viruses that will come next, and they will come next, are going to evolve. Thus, the guidance is going to evolve, and it's not simply science responding to what's happening. It's our, uh, you know kind of limitations in being able to anticipate what's next. And there's a lot of work going into that. That will continue to improve. But uh, I, I used this analogy when I was uh, leading the, the PREDICT project is that, you know, the, the weather service and our ability to predict the weather, which is still imperfect, as everyone knows, sometimes it's telling me it's raining today and I look out the window and the sun is shining, right? Um, but uh, but that, what we had took 50 years to even start, right? 50 years of data on everybody, you know, putting out their temperature gauges and their weather, their rain collectors. That, there was no prediction until 50 years of that data was brought in. And now it gets better and better because over the decades, we've improved the science. Now, that's going to be the same thing always in healthcare. Uh, is, and unfortunately, we don't have that 50 years uh, of data for what viruses are out there, where they might come from, how we put ourselves at risk. We need to collect that. Uh, and that will also inform what we need for diagnostic and vaccine and therapeutic pipeline. I, I think that is really important. We need that investment. And that's what we as advocates have to have to push for. Now, I, I want to get into the weeds, if that's OK. We've had a number of requests from from viewers and listeners to explore one particular aspect of research that has caused some controversy. And that's this question of gain of function. And, and if I may test out a definition for you and, and see if I'm sort of on the right track, um, and apologies if I'm going to my notes and, and, and reading this, but 
it's, it's about us in the laboratory understanding how the virus changes. And in doing so, what additional abilities um, the virus might, might develop to infect more people and, and cause more serious uh, disease and, and hence gain of function. And the issue is that perhaps lab scientists might not just be watching how the virus evolves, but by encouraging it to go through these viral replications yeah. more rapidly, um, we may be actually encouraging a move to more um, uh, uh, contagious versions of the virus. And, and then, of course, there is this question as well of, of, you know, do we tinker with the virus to see about how it might become uh, uh, more contagious? And, and is that gain of function? What am I missing? Uh, no, you, ha you really do have it uh, just about right, uh, Ben. I, I think in its simplest, most technological term, game of function is, is simply a change in a, in, in a virus. In this case, we're talking about a virus. So a change in, in the virus that confers or causes new or enhanced activity in some way. Okay. So that's the, just the technological term as a, a virus evolves, like getting new strains, it's, it's changing. It's having a mutational change or other change. And now it, it may be more dangerous or be more transmissible and let and less dangerous as far as severity just just like we're seeing playing out in nature now from a research and regulatory perspective the definition became more specific and basically was shifted to mean tinkering as you put it uh, or purposefully altering genetic codes of organisms in a way that could make them more transmissible or pathogenic or more dangerous um, that could be done Again, back to sort of the balance beam, that could be done in order to find remedies uh, and so that we can be prepared to, in order to prepare vaccines uh, when something happened in nature and, and gets into people or for really more treacherous reasons like creating a bioweapon. Um, and, and as you nicely put it, the, the definition continues to evolve. And I think Everyone can understand why the definition needs to evolve because it's not, it's confusing. It's not immediately understandable. So while um, previously in the regulatory sense, gain of function did not mean that next piece that you mentioned or, or helping the virus along to naturally evolve by passing it through cells and culture or laboratory animals, um, but to see what happens and then be able to prepare whatever's next for what happens naturally, but accelerating that evolution. And, and I think people are getting more concerned about that, um, though that is uh, a lot more close to nature and thus more likely to help us find uh, remedies and, and other things. All of this has to be done. If it's done at all, it needs to be done incredibly carefully and safely. And we usually don't do it in with a, a, a viable organism like or a virus. We usually do it in a, a model system that can't infect people, that kind of work, yeah. And again, this comes back, I think, to the, the need to communicate effectively and explain what it is that we're doing and, and sort of build consensus. I'm, I'm drawn, you're going to laugh, John, I'm drawn to one of my very, very first jobs back in the United Kingdom, where I worked for the first regulatory authority on assisted conception and embryo research. And I was holding public consultations on the use of um, uh, 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 ovarian tissue to, to look at embryo research or, or, or to in to be used in in uh, embryo research and this was horrific to a lot of people but the it was much better to be able to to um to do this kind of research rather than ask uh you know women to donate eggs that you know they might have to do for for other purposes i, I think about it now because it is about sort of moving from um, you know, the, the simplistic headlines of Frankenstein's monster or Brave New World. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? And, and as you look at the way in which scientists have been, um, I think, really beaten over the head around gain of function, um, 
I, 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 I've seen the way sort of commentators and politicians have sort of scooped everything up into gain of function. And, and I think that's very dangerous. And I, I just wonder what you think we should be doing around building a more, uh, building a definition of, of things like gain of function. It won't only be gain of function, but things that science has to do and that we need to make sure that we bring the public along with us. Yeah, I think one of my realizations in this whole thing is is that uh, a big part of the lack of trust is figuring out who decides, who decides what's worth uh, the risk and where it's safe to do certain work and and who doesn't. And I think the public is demanding and and rightly so wants to be involved in in where that line is. Um, I do worry that the that we need to do more just like this podcast we need to do more to help people form their opinions from a science-based or or um, at least truth-based evidence-based um, perspective uh, so that they can weigh in and they can um, you know make good recommendations or or their voices heard about what they want uh, again, I'm a scientist, so take that for what it's worth. And and uh, so that could be a conflict of interest, right, <laughs> from my putting this forward. But I do think these definitions are important and should evolve, but they need to be uh, directly understandable uh, and cleaner and clearer. And, and even for me, they're not, uh, and uh, including that one I mentioned on conflict of interest. Well, I want to come back to conflict of interest in just a second. But before we leave it, um, there are two sides to the coin here. One, it is, one is making sure that people understand and have, are, are familiar with the scientific method and that they build trust in um, our, our, our researchers and our healthcare professionals. And there's a, but there's another side to it, which is avoiding this sort of paternalism um, that, oh, you know, people don't need to know. This is too complex for them. Trust us. And I think that, that gain of function is a really good example where we need to have um, a more informed and, uh, a, frankly, a more sort of calmer conversation about what the science is, what we're doing, and what we expect the community, the society as a whole, to do. I, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I mean, the, it, it, it all comes back to, to need for more alliances, like the Bay Area Global Health Alliances, more uh, networked information. And then scientists are ourselves, we need to be more communicative. It is uncomfortable for most of us to talk to people like you, Ben, sorry to say. (laughs) But if we don't do it, then how can we expect the public to be ready for the information that then just hits them like a fire hose? Uh, And so I, I think you're exactly right. Right, ab- absolutely. Um, I-, I noticed we've got a guest, an additional guest Sorry, coming yeah. in and out. No, not at all. <laughs> Welcome to COVID era. That's Ted. <laughs> well, we are able, thankfully, to keep um, our two dogs. They haven't got up yet. They're still sleeping. So <laughs> thank heavens. So look, conflict of interest. This is something you know, you've mentioned to me a couple of times. And normally you think of conflict of interest in... Um, uh, in, in, in the, the medical and scientific um, uh, environments as something that you put at the bottom of an article to say you haven't been paid by a particular exactly. company or organisation. But that's evolved now, hasn't it? What do we mean well, by conflict of interest now? Yeah, well, I think, again, just like gain of function, we should probably go to the basics of what it sounds like. I, I'm really interested in working more with linguists, frankly, for this kind of communication expertise, uh, what it intuitively means. So absolutely, you know, I, I publish in journals and uh, scientific and medical journals ask you to declare any conflict of interest because you have a financial stake in what might come next. For example, if I was writing about uh, COVID vaccine, and I was also developing that vaccine and had some stake in the company, that would be a conflict of interest from from the truest sense of what was legally asked of us. Um, What's happened is that that the general public, because of the internet age, are reading those scientific and health journals. uh, And they're like, well, wait, these people have worked with those people. So that's a conflict of interest. Or this 
person, you know, gets grant funding. So that's a conflict of interest. Um, not in the previous technical terms, but I agree with them. I want people to know, you know, my background and from where I'm speaking. So now, even though journals don't want it and don't like it, they want me to put, I have no conflict of interest. I put everything. I put my husband's company. I put everything because I think people need to trust scientists. And if they find some weird thing on the side that they don't know um, how that person's connected to it, it just can breed concern that if left unaddressed can become even conspiracy theories. Right, right. I think that is a really, really important point, John. And I, 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 again, I think there are things that, yeah, different, different disciplines, linguists, but again, you, you know, advocates and policymakers like, like I am, we, we need to be thinking about this and, and, are, and need to be open uh, to how these things changed. Yeah, I would also ask the, the general public to think about it and, and think about what people are required to do and, and give people a little bit of slack to say, oh, okay, I, if I'm going to say you have a conflict of interest, I want to, I want to actually know what that means from the, in the context that we're speaking of it. So that it goes both ways, right? We have to do a lot better in the scientific and advocacy communities, but um, we also need the public to, to do their homework if they're going to make, you know, sort of accusations about yeah. things. Yeah. And, and as you said, it, it probably comes from a very small group of people anyway, but but we need to have the discussion. And we, this is not something we can assume that, that people have got covered and understand it. Yeah. And in this connected age, uh, people, uh, you know, can, can really get a lot of that information from just that small minority that are putting it out to try to, to undermine uh, the science. And that's, that's been very da- dangerous. It's been weaponized. Uh, communication's been weaponized. And uh, I think, again, we have to build the trust and let people choose who they believe and who they feel comfortable hearing the information from. And hopefully there's some level of responsibility that those people that do become trusted, uh, you know, operate under. So I'm sort of afraid to ask this question because it's sort of putting both of us on the spot in a sense. But the future of Mm. COVID-19, what do you think two years time down the road when hopefully we are getting together <laughs> you asked over, me this last time <laughs> i know cup of coffee if it's in the morning cocktail if it's towards the end of the end of the day but what do you think the next two years of the pandemic are going to look like notwithstanding the fact that we can't take it you know th- there may be crazy things like wars or populist governments or god heaven knows what might, yeah. might come into it but Well, simply from the way that the virus is behaving and the way that people are behaving, uh, we can go back to we're not going to be out of this concerning situation until the whole world is vaccinated or immune. Um, And uh, and that we keep that immunity um, going, meaning boosters or people that get exposed and infected and recovered, they still need to be boosted. They may, they may have some immunity, uh, good immunity initially, but for coronaviruses, it just wanes a lot more cl- quickly than other diseases. So until we have the world vaccinated and everyone should be an advocate for that, uh, that's in your community. <laughs> so the people at the grocery store, as well as in South Africa uh, yeah. or places that have even less ability to get vaccine until those folks get vaccinated. It's really hard to predict anything other than what I told you, uh, you know, a long time ago <laughs> during the well, pandemic. And that is that we're going to be in and out of concerning situations. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to have to track variants. We're so much better at that now but we're going to have to track them. We're going to have to allow countries like South Africa or next time it could be us saying, hey, we have a new variant. Um, we're going to have to uh, take that and use it judiciously, appropriately, not do the knee-jerk reaction. Um, so, uh, you know, if you ask me to go out on a limb, try to be Nostradamus, I'm going to say it's going to be at least a year until we have the world uh, receiving vaccine. And then I, 
I, it defies me to be Nostradamus about how people will behave and if they'll be responsible and if they'll care about their neighbors. Even if you don't care about yourself and you say, I don't mind, I'll get COVID. Well, what about your neighbors? And if you get COVID, please, you still need a booster because <laughs> yeah. yeah. you'll get it again and you can transmit it again. Yeah. And we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. So you really don't want to get COVID yeah. if you possibly yeah. can. For me, the biggest thing is the, the need to push vaccine equity and the need for massive investments in the delivery of vaccines around the world. And, and you know, to the extent that I, I would want to be Nostradamus, um, that would be uh, the one thing I think that I, I would really want to, to press and to really focus in in the next two years. What are you optimistic about? So, so for me, I'm intrigued that these last two years have seen a dramatic change in the way people think and understand One Health. I think that has been amazing and really productive. So what are you optimistic about? Yeah, well, I'm optimistic about that. I'm optimistic uh, and I'm um, encouraged and I'm lifted up by people's desire to work on impactful things. Uh, that goes from, you know, the private sector uh, saying, you know, that this company doesn't have to be all about profit. It is about profit, but we can be good citizens and jump in. And we're seeing that over and over again. In fact, like shaking and rattling at the door, let us help. And that that is something, if I, sorry, be a little pessimistic, I'm worried that our public health systems, our general healthcare systems, they are so disarticulated um, and siloed that um, there are huge obstacles to overcome that, but I, there's a lot of passion to fix that. Um, so I am optimistic that people want to fix it. I'm concerned that the fatigue of this pandemic going on forever is diminishing that passion to do something better. But, but you know, looking at the connections of tech, other private industries, um, academics, communicators, advocates, uh, uh, generally people who are working in this arena for profit or not for profit are motivated to connect. Uh, they're motivated to work together. They're motivated to, uh, you know, do the right thing, yeah. work for global good. Uh, so that, that is uh, why I think I'm, I'm really excited about being in my new position, too, is yeah. just that, that if universities are suddenly creating new positions to say, we never want this to happen again, we have to get our acts together, we need to all work together um, to find bigger solutions, take bigger bites out of these wicked problems, uh, that I, I hope we don't lose that. Yeah. So we've reached the top of the hour. Um, you know that I normally ask guests what their favourite Pet Shop Boys song is. We're not going there. That, okay, that, good. We've moved on from that. So, <laughs> I'm sure everyone, including the Pet Shop Boys, are thrilled about that. Um, <laughs> but, but so we've spoken a lot about the, the role of technology and the role of social media platforms. And, and I wonder, as you've been you know, getting into your new role, have you been looking at the way social technology is being used? And are there any sort of clips or um, examples that have you have come across that are interesting and that perhaps you think our viewers and listeners might find interesting? Well, for, for me, the and I'm not just, you know, blowing smoke at you, but uh, I do think the podcast genre is incredible because for those who are interested and want to get information. There is just a wealth of information out there in hopefully a somewhat entertaining way uh, to convey it. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. Um, there are, uh, you know, really powerful platforms that allow information to get out instantaneously almost. Um, and I think that's great. I think that the, the, they, they were and are, uh, you know, prone to, um, you know, bad actors doing the wrong thing. And, uh, and that's where I do think we need a, a huge amount of thought. And then I'm not sure about regulation versus just more 
professional, responsible uh, stewardship. But um, you, you know, Ben, that I've been, you know, the victim of bots and real people, you know, just uh, slamming me for similar reasons to what we talked about with South Africa and the anti-Asian yeah. stuff, just because I worked on this stuff before and I worked with collaborators all over the world, then I became a target for those who wanted to, at first, find blame, but secondly, um, really, you know, just take this terrible tragedy and and work it to their advantage. And yeah. um, so that that's that's the downside, but I think it's fixable. And I do think communication and being in a connected world is the right way to go to protect us and to do better. But we all need to to be responsible uh, and and also don't consume content that's not responsible because that just gives it more growth and a voice. Right. And I think, you know, the rest of us just have to step up and say, you know, our voice has to be heard too. And, you know, it's not enough for us just to try and ignore the bad actors. We've got to speak up and speak out. Yeah. And, I, and I hope podcasts like ours have been, have been able to, you know, start doing that. So, look, Jonna, I am so grateful to you for coming back and just keeping us updated on what is going on. This has been a hugely helpful and, I think, informative podcast. It certainly helped me understand what's going on with COVID-19 much more, much more deeply. And I'm, I'm hugely grateful. And I, I just want to say thank you for everything that you and your team is doing at UC Davis and around the world to help us be prepared for what comes next with, uh, with SARS-CoV-2, but what comes after SARS-CoV-2. So thank you so much. And, you know, you and your folks, you are a shot in the arm. Ah, oh, thanks, Ben. And uh, thanks to you and Shot in the Arm and the Bay Area Global Health Alliance uh, for giving us outlets that can become those trusted sources. So I'll keep it up if you do. Okay, deal. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode. If you are watching the video version, sorry for the choppy video, we were at the mercy of the internet gods. Thanks again to Jonna Mazet from UC Davis and to Sarah Anderson from the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. A Shot in the Arm podcast is a project of the Global Health Reporting Center. Thanks to our producer and director, Eric Espera of News.media, who makes the magic happen. Thanks also to Troy Espera, our digital producer. And thanks to you. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone.